I'm Derek Alexander Pope, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast rediscovers the untold stories of the American quest for liberty and justice for all. The 2020 elections are not the first time the nation was faced with making changes that carried stark consequences for its future. The outcome of the 1876 presidential election was just as pivotal because it marked the beginning of the end of Reconstruction and the reversal of all the gains made by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. In this episode, we dissect the confluence of social, political, and legal forces that ushered in those changes in an episode we call The Deconstruction of Reconstruction. If we had listened to prophecies at a former period, we might not now be compelled against our will to listen to new warnings against an old danger. Are the Southern Democrats willing to accord to the Negro his civil and political rights without reservation or abridgment? If not, it follows as night the day that the war will have to be fought over again. Let us not delude ourselves by crying peace. If we surrender, let us surrender with our eyes open. Let us admit that it is the untiring hate of the Southerners that has worn out our endurance. And though we staked everything for freedom under the spur of rebellion, we have not enough principle about us to uphold that freedom. If we will ever again struggle to regain that supremacy of liberty which we are about to abdicate so basely, that is a question to be discussed by itself. For the present, it suffices to say the day which sees the last federal soldier evacuating the South in obedience to the white leaguers will also see the last of the liberty for the Negroes. The St. Louis Globe Democrat, March 31st, 1877. The presidential election of 1876 took place the same year the country celebrated its centennial. Election night was full of suspense and uncertainty. Only 254,000 votes separated the Republican Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes from the Democrat New York Governor Samuel Tilden. Tilden had an electoral college lead with 184 votes compared to the 165 Hayes had garnered. Neither had reached the magic number of 185 and the outcome depended on the results from three southern states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, where so much confusion about fraud and intimidation of black voters existed that Congress was forced to appoint an electoral commission to produce a winner. The commission, which was comprised of five senators, five representatives, and five members from the Supreme Court, eight Republicans and seven Democrats in all, began their deliberations on Thursday, February 1st, 1877. But while the commission was deliberating, some behind the scenes negotiations were taking place. 
negotiations that would settle more than the outcome of the election. It would also bring about the effective end of Reconstruction. The bargain seemed simple enough. If Hayes won the election, he would recognize democratic control of the South and remove federal soldiers from the region who had been placed there to protect black lives and black voting rights. Hayes would also appoint a Southerner to his cabinet and get federal aid for the Texas and Pacific Railroad. For their part, Democrats would not contest the election and would agree to respect the civil and political rights of Negro citizens. They formalized their agreement on Monday, February 23, 1877 at the Warmley Hotel. The commission awarded the 20 contested electoral college votes to Hayes. The Senate certified the results and Hayes was inaugurated on March 5, 1877. Two months later, he ordered federal troops to stop guarding the state houses in Louisiana and South Carolina. The secessionist Democrats took control and almost overnight began to reverse the gains made during Reconstruction. The Chicago Tribune reported, The long controversy over the black men seems to have reached a finality, but one former slave put it differently. The whole South, every state in the South, he said, had gone into the hands of the very men who held us as slaves. Any hopes that Reconstruction and its goals of full citizenship for the newly emancipated would be a permanent aspect of the American landscape were replaced by the realities of just how much the specter of race infected every nook and cranny of national thought. Several factors contributed to the abandonment of Reconstruction as a national goal. Economic insecurity, violence committed against blacks for exercising their voting rights, political cowardice, and narrow judicial rulings all played their part in reinforcing the all-other-person starting point for the black experience. But 1873 would signal the beginning of the deconstruction of Reconstruction. Severe economic downturn hit the nation that year. Railroad construction was the peak industry following the Civil War. More than 30,000 miles of tracks had been laid across the country since 1868, and it was second only to agriculture in the number of people it employed. But when the investment bank, J. Cook & Company, faltered because of its overinvestments, financial panic ensued and it ushered in a severe economic depression. Railroad-related businesses went bankrupt, factories closed, agricultural prices dropped, and widespread unemployment as high as 30% took over. Workers began to insist on some form of relief from state and national government, and a strange sentiment began to creep into Northern sensibilities. The northern middle class began to conflate the economic panic with the reconstruction efforts for black economic rights in the South. And they began to equate the demands of workers in northern factories with what they were being told were the attitudes of former slaves working in southern fields. Just as bad, if not worse, was the collapse of the Freedmen's Savings Bank. 
The bank was a private corporation chartered by Congress in 1865 at the same time it created the Freedmen's Bureau. The bank encouraged black savings and bureau agents persuaded black people to open accounts. 61,000 black people, including Frederick Douglass, had Freedmen's Savings accounts. The bank was not spared from the fallout of the Panic of 1873 and its assets had to be liquidated. Douglas himself lost all of the $10,000 he deposited and his weekly newspaper, New National Era, was shut down. But the economic woes of the Panic of 1873 were just one facet of the retreat from Reconstruction. The election for governor in Louisiana in 1872 would result in the massacre of nearly 100 black people on Easter Sunday in 1873. It was a standoff at the Grant Parish Courthouse in Colfax, Louisiana. After two different candidates were declared the winner of the election, a federal judge decided that the Republican candidate should prevail. Many whites in the state refused to accept that decision. They set up a shadow government and formed a paramilitary group called the White League, the same group mentioned in the St. Louis newspaper editorial. Their purpose was to intimidate blacks and white Republicans, and the trial transcript from the United States Circuit Court showed that on Easter Sunday, there, there were 300, 300 at that house. One half of those colored men didn't have no weapons. They had no arms. That was Easter Sunday. The first white man I saw that day was old man Hadnot. He was about 300 yards from the courthouse and he had men with him. The shooting began about 6 a.m. John Green was there. Bill Irwin was there. Bill Cruikshanks and his brother, they was there. They kept up the fight all day. They told us to stack our arms and they wouldn't hurt us. For us to march out. Shaq White held up a white leaf and asked him not to kill him. But Irwin shot him. Shot him down. First thing them white men did, after we went inside the courthouse, they set the courthouse on fire. The white men then took the colored men around the corner of a coffee house and shot them. I laid on the ground until morning, fearing to move. It was dead men all around me, and I heard the men all around me talking about killing niggas. I crawled off the field, not there to get on my feet. I finally In his testimony, Levi Nelson identified each and every one of the assailants he knew. And Levi knew them all. Dr. Compton, Clement Penn, Oscar Given, Prudholm Lemoine, Bill Cruikshanks, Bill Irvin. He continued, rattling off every name with machine gun, rapid fire recall, and precision. John Hadnot, Dennis Lemoine, Tom Hickman, George Marsh, Willie Marsh, Mr. Roberts, Ben Ballard Jr., D. Hickman, William Hickman, James Hickman, and Jay Buckland. They were all there. They were the killing party. Levi Nelson, February 27, 1874. Voters in the North had grown weary of Reconstruction and had begun to hold Republicans responsible for the economic downturn. Southern Democrats seized on the chaos and violence and took control of the midterm elections in 1874. 
and that guaranteed there would be no more reconstruction legislation like the Civil Rights Enforcement Act of 1870. Section 2 of the 15th Amendment said that Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, and on May 31, 1870, that's exactly what they did. Passed an act to enforce the right of citizens of the United States to vote in the several states of this union. The act ensured that every eligible voter, which by then included black men because of the 15th Amendment, would be allowed to vote in any election without distinction of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And the law also guaranteed to all citizens of the United States, which included the newly emancipated because of the 14th Amendment, the same and equal opportunity to perform any required prerequisite to voting without distinction of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Registering to vote was a prerequisite, and at that time so was paying a poll tax. In January 1873, William Garner, a black citizen of and registered voter in Lexington, Kentucky, went to cast his ballot in the municipal election. Two election inspectors, William Reese and Matthew Fouché refused to let Garner vote, claiming that he had not paid the $1.50 poll tax. As a matter of fact, Garner had attempted to pay the tax, but the payment was refused by the tax collector. So Garner presented an affidavit to the inspectors, showing that he had paid the tax. The Civil Rights Enforcement Act allowed him to do so, but the inspectors refused to accept it. And worse still, they refused to count his vote. They had denied him his right, his civil and constitutional right to vote, but when the case made its way to the Supreme Court, there was a very narrow interpretation of the Civil Rights Enforcement Act. In United States v. Reese, the court said that no violation of Mr. Garner's civil right occurred because the two sections that sought to punish the inspectors for the wrongful act Section 3 and Section 4 did not use the magic language that was used in Section 1 and Section 2. The magic language, without distinction of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And because those two sections failed to include the language, then there could be no legal showing that Garner had been deprived of a right to vote because of discrimination. And in another case, one dealing with the Colfax massacres, the court weakened the law even more. The government had brought action against William Cruikshank for his role in starting and perpetuating the incident. He's the one that Levi Wilson mentioned in his testimony. Bill Cruikshank and his brother, they was there and they kept up the fight all day. But the court said the post-war amendments only covered state action. Violations of a citizen's rights had to be committed by the states, not private individuals. This was the court's reasoning, even though the Enforcement Act spoke of acts by two or more persons who band together to deprive any citizen of the enjoyment of any right or privilege granted by the Constitution or laws of the United States. We may suspect that race was the cause of the hostility, the court said. 
but it does not appear that it was their intent to interfere with any right granted or secured by the Constitution or laws of the United States. All of this formed the social, political, and legal backdrop that led to the 1876 election. And the aftermath of the contest produced a new, old climate of smothering black equality in favor of disenfranchisement, subordination, and segregation, what would become the cornerstone of the redeemed South. In Mississippi, a Democratic leader circulated what he called a plan of campaign, and in it, it said, Every Democrat must feel honor-bound to control the vote of at least one Negro by intimidation, purchase, keeping him away from the polls as each individual may determine. This was just the kind of actions the Civil Rights Enforcement Act was designed to punish. After the federal soldiers were removed from the South, a coalition of merchants, planters, and business entrepreneurs took control of the region's politics. They called themselves the Redeemers. They solidified their control by redrawing district lines and substituting appointive office for elected ones, especially in counties with black majorities. A Charlton, South Carolina newspaper said the goal was to reduce the colored vote to insignificance in every county in the state and to make clear that the white South does not desire or intend ever to include black men among its citizens. And in Louisiana, the number of black voters went from 100,000 all the way down to 1,000. 80,000 white voters lost their rights as well. By 1890, Mississippi began the process of Southern states changing their constitutions to do just what the 15th Amendment said could not be done, deny or abridge the right to vote. But they did it indirectly, putting in place other prerequisites and qualifications, like educational requirements such as citing and explaining obscure passages of the state and federal constitution, or property qualifications, having to own a certain amount of property before you can vote, and of course, poll taxes. And if any white voters would be excluded from voting because they could not meet the new state constitutional requirements, the lawmakers had a provision where any voter could be exempt from the qualifications if someone in their family had voted in 1867. Well, remember, black men were not voters until 1870. These were the so-called grandfather clauses. South Carolina changed its constitution in 1895. Louisiana did the same three years later. Alabama changed their laws in 1901. North Carolina and Virginia changed theirs in 1902 and Georgia rounded out the region in 1908. W.E.B. Du Bois would later say, the slave went free stood a brief moment in the sun and then moved back again towards slavery. Hidden Legal Figures. 
After the states made changes to their constitution, lawyers wasted no time in resurrecting the right to vote. In our next episode, we'll meet some of these pioneers, like Wilford Horace Smith, Morfield Story, James Adley Cobb, and others who worked tirelessly to reverse the tide of a more imperfect union. That and more will be part of our next episode. As always, thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in each week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. Want to know more about this podcast? Then visit us at hiddenlegalfigures.com. Each Wednesday, our blog called Revealed Behind the Hidden Legal Figures podcast will give you additional information about the current episode. And over on YouTube, every Thursday, you'll find our What I Learned video. That's where we talk about what we discovered from this episode and give you the chance to share with us what new information you've acquired. As always, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in each week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. <laughs>